all crazy eyed on me. I'll show you some crazy eyes. Look at this. Come on, let's get busy. Welcome to the Page to Pixel podcast. I am your host, Reed Jolin, and joined with me, as always, is my dear friend, Jeremy Rock. How are we doing today, Jeremy? Great. It's spooky season, boys and girls. Now I'm not the weird one for having bones in my front yard. Yeah, you know, sometimes uh, you got to do that sometimes. And I wasn't there like a real life case where someone had like a real skeleton in their front yard or something? Like maybe it's like a urban legend or something. But I remember a couple years ago reading a news story about like, some family or some person had like an actual skeleton on display for their haunted house and like it became like a big crime story i think that's the most successful haunted house ever like it's just you're too legit to quit at that point speaking of crime stories that's kind of the direction we're going with today because today's topic ladies and gentlemen is the condemned games so the condemned games were a series of games that were released uh i would say about what 15 years ago 2005 2005 or so um, yep. created by Monolith Productions. Um, and I'm, let me just take a peek at what else Monolith has created. I want to say they've done some pretty good stuff uh, in the last couple of years, just looking at their resume, so to speak, um, including Condemned. Fear, I believe. Yep, Fear, Fear 2. Um, they also did the uh, Middle Earth Shadows of Mordor and Shadows of War game. Oh, that was is, them? Yeah, it's them too. Um and that's really been it so far. So it looks like they've kind of put a halt on things in the last four or five years. So, yeah, this was one of their bigger titles, you know, 15 years ago. I want to say the Condemned Criminal Origins, the first one, was in fact a Xbox 360 launch title. Um, so that's, it was, I think, one of the first games that my brother had bought for the system. Uh, Condemned 2 then was a follow-up to the first game. We're going to talk about both in detail. But the second one came out in 2008, so just a few years after the fact. So, Jeremy, can you kind of tell me some of your experience with this game series, and then I'll kind of talk about mine a little bit? Well, I first played Condemned back in high school. I think I was probably 16, so it would have been like a year or so after it was out. I remember it being really terrifying, actually. Um, I wasn't super big into horror, probably until I was an adult. So this being one of those first horror game experiences I had, the way the audio and the setting kind of meld together when you're playing it on, on headphones at like 1 o'clock in the morning in your bedroom in the dark really brings everything in this game together and makes a really scary experience. Probably, honestly, one of my favorite horror games I've ever played. Yeah, I can kind of reflect a lot of what you said there, too, is... As I said in the beginning, my brother had purchased the Xbox 360. I don't want to say when it came out, but soon thereafter. And this was one of the first games that he bought, which is kind of surprising because this doesn't seem like a game my brother would want to play. But I do remember playing it myself and just being totally freaked out by it because it's a very claustrophobic um, series, especially the first game. Um, you're having to sort of make your way through these like really rundown, decrepit apartments and stuff. And like there's these just crazed out, drugged out people. And the AI that they use for this game actually has like a really strong sense of intelligence and that they can, you know, run from room to room and like they're shouting at you and you can't exactly know where they are. So unlike other games where there's this like 
jump scare mentality. Sure, this game kind of has some jump scares, but like I think it's more more, more frightening. So it's like you can hear these people coming. You know, you can hear them in the other room shouting and all these other things. And like, you know, you have to go over there and it kind of builds this sense of tension. Um, and I thought the the like the crime scene investigation stuff was pretty cool because, yeah, I just thought it was a really cool game from top to bottom. And even back in 2005, I, I thought the graphics were really outstanding um, and it was such a really cool IP even back then. And it was it was something that I, I, I liked, but I was a little too freaked out to kind of get too super, super far into. It's really been through Let's Plays and stuff like that that I've been able to, how you say, complete the game. Right. I think one thing this game did really well that I see a lot of other horror games, in my opinion, kind of fail on, like you were saying, is they set up that they're talking in the background and you can hear them before you encounter them. And what I like in this game is it is it forces you to deal with those those people. There's no running away. There's no like sneaking around them. Like you might be able to do that, but I don't ever remember being able to. You were just kind of forced to fight them. And I think that's a, something that I kind of don't like about a lot of horror games. I know I've played Amnesia and Outlast. I think yeah, that's, that's Outlast, a good, is that it? Yeah, Outlast is yeah. like the one where you have like the camcorder and stuff. Yeah, and the issue I have with those games is all you can do is run away. And once you've been caught 17 times by the same guy and had your legs ripped off, it kind of loses that feel where having the ability to fight back, I know that was a thing I really enjoyed about the, uh, not Resident Evil Village, I haven't played that one yet, but Resident Evil 6, was when you're fighting that family, there are times when you actually have to engage in combat and sort of balancing out that running slash fighting, flight and f flight or fight reflex, I think adds a whole new level of just kind of stress and tension to the horror experience. Oh, are you talking about the one where you're like stuck in that like Louisiana house? Right, and you're running awesome. around with the invincible like redneck family, and like sometimes you, like you can't kill them, but you can stop them long enough to open a door so that you can continue to run away, kind of thing. Oh yeah, that's seven, which is like the 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 prequel to uh, eight or village. Yeah, I I'm I'm too chicken to play that game just because it's the same thing that you're saying, and I think that is one element that makes a horror game really good. And actually, you know, Jeremy, I think this might be a good time to talk about in general. This is kind of off off script, but I think it'd be kind of a good idea to talk about it. Is like, you know, what makes a horror game good in our opinion? Obviously, our very subjective opinion about what makes a horror game. And I don't think either of us are really horror game fanatics. I mean, I know both of us love horror movies and horror literature and stuff like that. But in terms of horror games, it's really something that's very difficult for me to broach personally, um, just because I don't like the idea of me myself making the decisions that are involved in a scary story like when i'm watching a scary story or reading a scary story i can kind of like like disengage from it because it's not happening to me because i'm Unless not you're reading the goosebumps make your own decisions books yeah, choose your own which adventure. i still read as an adult okay Dude, those are excellent and goosebumps we do not besmirch goosebumps on this podcast if there's anything we don't do it's besmirch the good name of rl stein so I, I yeah i think with with horror games i can get away with some of them i can play like the resident evil games to a point until i get like literally like my you know i get a little tense and stuff uh, and there's certain games that i do like playing that have sort of like horror elements like the dark Souls series 
um, that have horror elements. What's so interesting about horror games for me is just like the level of immersion and how it's something where I like to watch it more so than I actually like to experience it myself. That was more of my personal reflection on what a horror game is. It's not necessarily what makes it good, but I'm sure we'll get into it. What do you think, Jeremy? Um, I think what makes a horror game good is the exact reason that you don't want to play it. Um, you said that you don't want to be the one to make those decisions. And I think that's kind of what makes it good. So if you get a really good ambiance set, so it's spooky, you've got some good audio, good audio cues, so you know, like stuff's happening, but then forcing the player to make that decision. And that's kind of why I brought up like Resident Evil 7, because there are times when you need to fight, there's times when you need to run, you can't only fight because you're going to run out of resources. So there's this this whole balancing act that I think that needs to be done where you force the player to make all of these quick calculations of, am I going to need this ammo in 10 minutes when I actually have a creature I can kill? Do I have enough health? Do I have all these different things falling into place and forcing someone to make all of those calculations and then just, okay, I would do this or I don't. And it, it, it just kind of brings that that flight or fight instinct back to you or freeze if you can't make that decision and then you know you get chopped in half by a redneck man i mean i i think most people would agree that our, our most base instinct as human beings is fight or flight is fear like out of all of the emotions that everyone has regardless of their cultural you know upbringing fear is like so ingrained into our reptile brain that when we are experiencing something like that we Equally, especially in terms of an entertainment, going back to books, games and um, TV shows and movies, you know, I think a lot of people like horror because they like to like peel back that fear a little bit and like peek at it, but not fully experience it. And I think that's what I'm trying to get at is like when you're reading a book and you're watching a movie, you can sort of disengage. You can peel back the layer a little bit. But when you're playing a game, you're fully immersed in it. It's almost like you're going through the experience yourself. Maybe there's some sort of chemical reaction in your brain. Again, I'm not a neuroscientist, but um, I think there is something about a horror game that really gets to our base instinct in a lot of ways. I think it's a, I think it's a lot like riding a roller coaster. It's that, that simulated fear, and I think a horror game simulates that even more than a, a, a horror movie or maybe a scary book. You know, like you're a step closer to, to that, that fear and so it just simulates that fear, but you're still kind of safe. Which is interesting because, like I said, I, I'm not a huge horror game fan. I, I appreciate, I love the genre, but me myself, I, it's, I'm, such, I'm, I'm such a chicken. I can't play a lot of them. So, and which is interesting because I, I just love roller coasters too. I'm an absolute fanatic for roller coasters, but and I can't stand roller coasters. See, it's kind of interesting that we have. I'm, this. A, I'm a great big baby when it comes to roller coasters. I'm also terrified of heights, so that's cool. Hey, man, that's just your little mammalian brain, your little monkey brain, just. Uh, Working, working overtime. Um, I think it, just looking at the at the um, the genre as a whole, horror games have developed from you know text based adventures to eight bit stuff to sixteen bit all all the way up all the way up to modern times. Certainly, more modern titles like a lot of other genres have a lot of cinematic elements to them that can make them more terrifying. Audio elements that can make them more terrifying. You know, 
once you up the level of immersion from, you know, text to 8-bit to modern gaming, it just, it, it is so much more immersive. I mean, going back and looking at, let's say, Resident Evil, the original one that came out on PlayStation, it's still a very spooky game if you have the lights off and you're just kind of watching it. But it's a lot more intense if you're playing something like Resident Evil 8 with a full audio headset and you're in the dark, you know, because it's so much more immersive and visually picking in on that i really wanted to play it with vr but i didn't have vr so oh, i couldn't man. but oh man that would have been i don't i don't know if i could have done that i think that may have been a little like i probably would have finished it but it probably would have take a little bit of a couple of breaks to to calm the nerves i like the, the corner of action and horror like dark souls and castlevania i mean castlevania is not a really scary game but you know it has those elements to it and it's just like the 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 fo- the forced like Five Nights at Freddy's sort of thing, like the modern horror games. They just like they just don't interest me in the in the sense that like I know it's supposed to be scary. Like I'd rather have it be sort of like a um, organic sense of horror, if that makes sense. I agree. Like if you look at if you look at um, kind of comparing horror games to horror movies, I view those as like the Five Nights at Freddy's as kind of just it's just cheap jump scares. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's what I see it as too. It's like. And not that there's anything wrong with jump scares, but I think horror, for me, horror and comedy are two genres where there's a lot of craftsmanship that goes into making a really good product. It's one of those things where anyone can write a horror story, right? Spooky guy hurts people, rinse, repeat. But to do it well requires like a real, a real craftsmanship. Yeah, and, and there's obviously different senses of horror, too. There are, you know, the jump scare horror. There is the psychological horror, which I'm probably the most biggest, I'm, I'm the big fan of. And then there's just, like, the slasher horror, which I think is another thing that's cool in its own right. You know, I think slasher stuff, even so, can get a little bogged down in just violence for violence sake. But, I mean, I think there's a lot of, I don't know, credibility for all of the different styles of horror. But I think for me, and especially in a horror game, you want it to develop more organically. You want the atmosphere to kind of scare you, not necessarily the mechanics to scare you. So when you're playing something like Resident Evil 7 or Resident Evil Village or, you know, Alien Isolation, which again, I've not played, just watched because I'm a chicken. But God, I played that. I don't remember anything from it, but I do remember playing it. Maybe it's something we can do like together online sometime, like on a YouTube or something. Ooh. I think with modern games, it, it's really cool to have like you were saying with Resident Evil 7, the the juxtaposition between um, running and fighting and you're really just leaning into those baseline instincts that we as human beings have. I think that's what makes a good horror game when you're able to fully immerse yourself and you are the one that's having to kind of deal with the, the spookiness that's kind of occurring around you. All right. Now, after that little segue into what makes a good horror game and our just respective opinions on it, Jeremy is going to tell us a little bit about the original Condemned Criminal Origins. Go ahead, Jeremy. Condemned Criminal Origins opens with our protagonist, Ethan Thomas, arriving at the scene of a murder. Ethan is escorted by Detective Dickinson through a dilapidated, abandoned building to the grisly scene of the strangulation victim posed with mannequins. Ethan is contacted by his lab tech, Rosa, and using some wireless evidence collection tools, the pair begin investigating the crime scene. The duo discovers that the killer is likely missing a finger due to bruising around the victim's neck. This leads Rosa to deduce the matchmaker killer is the culprit. The investigation is halted when Detective Dickinson smells cigarette smoke and concludes the killer is still in the building watching them. 
Before they can begin the search, power is cut off to the building. Dickinson sends Ethan to get power back on while he and a beat cop secure the area. Looking for the breaker, Ethan is attacked. After dispatching the assailant, Rosa mentions the increase in seemingly unprovoked violence among people living on the streets. As if exploring an abandoned building while being attacked by a serial killer isn't enough, Ethan must now contend with the building's deranged inhabitants to restore power. Ethan finally finds the location of the main breaker. Flipping the switch, Ethan is sent to the ground by an electrical shock, his firearm thrown from his hand. Lying dazed on the ground, a shadowy figure appears, briefly taunting Ian before disappearing with his gun. Ethan chases the suspect, however, in his haste, the criminal gets the drop on him, holding him at gunpoint. Shortly after, Dickinson and the beat cop knock in the door in an attempt to de-escalate the situation. The suspect shoots both of them before defenestrating Ethan. Ethan regains consciousness in his apartment with Malcolm Van Horn, an old friend of his father. Van Horn tells Ethan he is being blamed for the murders and only has moments to flee before a team of officers show up to arrest him. Ethan flees his apartment and continues investigating the matchmaker killer, aided by Rosa remotely. Ethan discovers the killer has been tracking his career with SCU, and the hunt for the matchmaker ends as Ethan finds his body staged with mannequins. Finding the suspect murdered by his own M.O., Ethan eventually concludes there is a serial killer X who is killing other serial killers using their own modus operandi. Ethan attempts to get ahead of serial killer X by hunting down the torturer, whom he thinks will be the next victim. The search takes him to a farmhouse on an apple orchard. Ethan is too late and finds the torturer recently deceased. Serial killer X once again attempts to ambush Ethan, but Ethan notices him in time and a skirmish ensues throughout the farmhouse. During the fight, Ethan is knocked out by Van Horn, who we discover is Serial Killer X's uncle. Before Ethan fades into unconsciousness, Van Horn attempts to convince Serial Killer X to stop this madness, but Serial Killer X refuses and begins to attack Van Horn. When Ethan regains consciousness, Serial Killer X does his mandatory villain explanation um, that he will be killing Ethan and he's been going around just murdering other Serial Killers. And... Serial Killer X begins to cut off Ethan's finger. As Ethan flails in pain, he looks up into the rafters of the, the barn and sees a deformed creature watching them from the rafters. Out of nowhere, Van Horn appears and knocks out er, and fights Serial Killer X, wrestling him to the ground and eventually frees Ethan. Van Horn explains that that creature is, the ma- is what's causing the madness of Serial Killer X and everyone else in the city and that Ethan has to go destroy the creature. Ethan hunts the creature through the farm, fighting other deformed humanoids. When the creature is cornered in a bar, the final battle ensues. Upon killing the creature, a gas line is ruptured and the barn is set ablaze. After the battle, Van Horn drives Ethan back to the city, leaving the burning farm behind them. Van Horn pulls the car off to the side of the road, leading Ethan to the trunk, revealing that serial killer X, his nephew, is still alive, bound in the trunk. From here, the player has the option of killing Serial Killer X or sparing him, in which Serial Killer X will pull out a gun and kill himself. The final scene takes place in a diner as Ethan sits patiently. Rosa appears sitting down next to him, writing that she is wired on a napkin. Ethan spends a few minutes explaining the situation, debriefing debriefing Rosa on the real story of what happened with Serial Killer X. After that, Rosa leaves and Ethan goes to the bathroom. Watching his face, suddenly his head whips around, revealing the same deformity of the creatures he fought at the farm. And that is the end of Condemned Criminal Origins. 
So yeah, that's a really great recap of the first Condemned game. Uh, if we didn't mention it before, I think we were talking about it a little bit before we started recording the podcast, is that these games were largely influenced by the movie Seven, Silence of the Lambs, and Saw. It was an original IP created mainly by Frank Rook, who was the uh, lead writer on this game. And you can sort of see with this plot of the first game how there is this really interesting combination of both like psychological realistic horror and like this budding supernatural horror that the second game is really going to pick up on. So how do you feel about the supernatural element in the game? I, I think... I think it's fine. Um, I, I think, yeah, that didn't sound super convincing. <laughs> no, um, I think um, the game would have been just fine if it was just a serial killer investigation and you have to climb it. Like all of your missions are like the first mission, which is really like claustrophobic and in, in, really intense. Yeah. And as it kind of pulls away to be this larger supernatural element, um, it, it does, I don't want to say it loses some of its teeth but in a way it, it just sort of it would have been just fine if it would have kept being the way that it was in the first couple of missions right um and so i know i yada yada over a lot of the the supernatural stuff going on that's more just kind of in a service to maybe leave a little bit more for the second game where it gets a little bit more into the meat and potatoes of the supernatural elements i think the this game really struggles in its act three story-wise it did a really nice job of building this situation where you've got these crazy people, kind of vagrants that just show up out of nowhere and attack you, and you don't know what's going on with that, and then you're doing this whole serial killer thing, and what makes things scary, in my opinion, is not knowing what's going on. The confusion adds a whole new level of scariness to the game, and then as you start to go and you start finding out some of the more supernatural stuff is going on. I, I can't, it kind of loses me there. I think it still does a really good job. I think the, I wouldn't necessarily call them plot holes, but just kind of the wackiness of the supernatural stuff. And like, you just kind of sigh as you find out what's going on. Um, you're distracted by the, the, the constant threat of the crazy people. So it, it balances it out still pretty well, but it, like you said, it could have just been a normal serial killer story, and I think it would have actually been a little bit better. Right, yeah, I agree. And I think rather than just jumping into the characters and the themes and all the other things with the first game, do you, do you just want to jump into like the plot of the second game, and then we can recap everything together once we know both plots? I think that's a good idea, yeah. All right, great. So let's jump into the plot of Condemned 2 Bloodshot, which again came out um, just a few years after Condemned 1. It came out um, on Xbox 360 and PlayStation 3 in March of 2008. If I'm not mistaken, the original Condemn only came out on Xbox 360 and PC. So this is the first time that this series is moving over to PlayStation 3. Um, and what's interesting is that this was produced by um, Monolith Productions, but it was published by Sega, which is a really interesting thing because you always associate Sega with... Sonic the Hedgehog, Virtual Fighter, other things like that. But it's interesting to have this like Western-developed um, horror game developed by Sega. I thought that was an interesting thing. Anyway, looking at the plot of Condemned 2, it is more or less a direct sequel to the first one. Um, I believe it takes place just around a year after the original one. 
So let's jump into the story synopsis. So the events of Bloodshot, um, Condemned 2, take place 11 months after the events at the end of Condemned Criminal Origins. The protagonist, Ethan Thomas, has transformed from the clean-cut, well-behaved agent from the start of Criminal Origins into an angry, unstable alcoholic. The main plot outline of the sequel is that the hero of the first game is still combating psychopaths, but now is unstable himself. He is seen being haunted by the creatures such as the alcohol demon, who first appear in visions, dreams, and television broadcasts throughout the events of the story. So, yeah, as the sort of overview kind of mentions, Ethan is this sort of, I want to say, kind of generic character. But as with a lot of games that kind of came out around 2008, 2009, 2010, around those parts, a lot of the major protagonists had to become this gruff, you know, edgy sort of characters. And I think this example in Bloodshot is just an amazing example of that. Um, I mean, who doesn't struggle with a physical alcohol demon every day? Absolutely. If you're not, like... How are you living? So as Jeremy sort of mentioned, it does sort of transition from like the the beginning of the first game has these very standardized, I don't want to say standardized, but has these very common ideas of like serial killer and thriller, very, very much like seven, the movie seven. But then it does kind of devolve into a little bit more sci-fi paranormal elements And you see that really exemplified in the second game. So let's jump more into the specifics of the plot here. All right. Under the orders of Director Farrell, Ethan Thomas is recruited back into the SCU to investigate the murder of his one-time mentor, Malcolm Van Horn. If you remember, he is the uncle of serial killer X in the first game. He is aided by his old partner, Rosa Angel, and commanded by the hostile and antagonistic Angel Dorland, SCU's tactical commander. Over the course of Ethan's investigation, he discovers that his arch nemesis, Serial Killer X, from the first game, is still alive, having been having been nursed to health by his uncle Malcolm. Um, so he's shot in the head at the end of the first game, but he does is somehow nursed back to health. But does Serial Killer X does kill Malcolm, um, as well as Metro City's mayor Rachel Mars, and eventually does kidnap Director Farrell, who does recruit Ethan back into the fold. So even within the plot early plot of the second game you sort of see some of these characters coming back and altering the course of the game so ethan and rosa also discover the source of all the city's troubles in a secret organization known as the oro o-r-o the cult hinted at in the first condemned whose members use painful metal implants to develop psionic powers that allow them to influence and control the rest of humanity rosa theorizes that they are the source of all humanity's crimes wars and hatred So at the end of Condemned Criminal Origins, like Jeremy had mentioned before, um, at the ending scene in the diner where Ethan turns around and he has this crazy face, it's the face of an Oro. So Serial Killer X, having learned about the Oro, now wants to harness their psionic ability and is currently killing and dissecting Oro members to obtain this ability. The Oro are much more powerful than previously thought. The members include many high-ranking members of society, including Mayor Mars, Director Farrell, and Agent Dorland. The Oro also control the SCU, and Dorlin and his tactical teams attempt to kill Ethan when he discovers their secret. Ethan fights back with the help of Rosa and SCU agent Pierce LaRue, and even Serial Killer X, who, Eth- who saves Ethan from the SCU, calling it a future investment. So all the while, Ethan is trying to kind of go through these different cases and stuff like that. Serial Killer X is sort of being like the Batman in the background, taking out some of these Oro members, but also having his own sort of invested plot points here. Malcolm Van Horn, if you remember, 
is the uncle of Serial Killer X, spent his life battling the Oro. He does leave Ethan a videotape message revealing the final truth about everything that's going on. That truth is that Ethan's parents were Oro members who defected from the organization and were killed for it. So this is where I'm going to have trouble not laughing. Ethan himself is the quote-unquote remedy, a long-prophesized hero having possessed a quote-unquote perfectly evolved vocal cords capable of generating the Oro's sonic power without the metal implants that the Oro use. Ethan's ability is more powerful than the Oro's, capable of destroying flesh and bone. The remedy is destined to be the quote-unquote voice opposing that of the Oro. As a result, Agent Dorland and the Oro want Ethan dead. Director Farrell, part of a splinter faction of Oro that wants to recruit rather than destroy Ethan, sacrifices his life to unlock Ethan's sonic powers after the two of them are cornered by Agent Dorland. So Ethan proceeds to the peninsula, an artificial landmass where the Oro have a secret base from where they monitor and control the entire city. Using his newfound sonic powers, Ethan defeats the Oro members, destroys the Oro machinery allowing them to control the city, then battles Dorland in a sonic duel with the collapsing peninsula. So, just rewinding this. describe a, a sonic duel? I, it sounds like it's a rap battle. Or you don't, I, I was thinking maybe it was like, like two people sitting outside, like one guy's in an apartment telling a guy down in the street to like shut up. <laughs> I like, wish. Like a Brooklyn shouting match, like, no, you shut up. Is he also, is he also a vampire? No, you shut up. Uh, I'm tired. Shut it's up. okay. We're, we're, we're both you tired. shut up. It's, it's both tired and we're talking about people screaming at each other till death. So, so Ethan does battle Dorland in a sonic duel. And as Dorland is defeated, he says to Ethan that the Oro's motives are to, quote-unquote, create hostility, the unwavering desire to fight, to unknowingly become our protectors. Ethan asks what they are protecting against, receiving no reply. Ethan tells Dorland he is nothing more than a puppet, and the former commander is flung to his death. Ethan escapes in a helicopter along with Rosa and LaRue, declining LaRue's offer of a drink and falling asleep. Meanwhile, the President of the United States suffers an apparent heart attack after receiving the message that the remedy is among us, suggesting that the President was a member of the Oro. Finally, strongly suggesting a sequel, which never happens, Serial Killer X is shown receiving Oro metal implants in his mouth, similar in appearance to those of the final boss. Oro member Ethan fought and killed at the end of the first condemned. So yeah... As you can sort of see between the first and the second plot, it goes a little off the rails in terms of its like unnecessarily secondary plot points. Just this whole idea of a secret society of people that have this ability to control and manipulate the world events. It's just, I don't know. I wouldn't, I don't know. It's just so far-fetched to me. It goes um, from like... Kind of simple, interesting story about a guy trying to find a serial killer with maybe something weird going on in the background, which just to like insane. Yeah, I I think not really fully having played both of these games to completion before recording this podcast. I just assume both of these games kind of follow the same formula as their you know original game. But after doing some research and analysis of especially the second game. It does go off the rails. I mean, it just it just it it just seems like it's a product of its time, especially the second one, in that it gives the character who typically didn't have weapons and stuff like that in the first one was really 
defenseless and it was more horrific to sort of experience combat. He gives him guns and all these different, you know, abilities in the second game. And it really just kind of goes, goes nuts with it. And having these sonic psionic abilities to shout and have like these vocal cords, it's just, I don't know. I think Skyrim. Yeah, exactly. I think maybe, maybe the, uh, maybe Todd Howard was inspired by this game. I don't know, but um, I do want to quote a great YouTuber that I watched a video of. I think it's G man lives is his name. And he was doing a retrospective of Condemned 2. And he said about the game is that for every one good thing they do right, they do one thing bad. Because some of the plot points in the second one and some of the action in the second one does seem genuinely compelling. Um, It's just that there's like too much emphasis on Ethan becoming this edgy, grizzled character. And, you know, he has this drinking demon and he's really just gruff around the edges. While in the first game, he's just a relatively unknown protagonist. He doesn't have much of a personality, which I think is better for a horror game. I think, what again, going back to what we were saying at the beginning of the podcast, what makes a good horror game is like, if your character in a horror game is really representative and blank of, you know, any character can, can any, any player can kind of fit into that mold. I think it makes it a little bit more terrifying because if it's a set character with set things, I think just to kind of give you a sort of cross example that's not necessarily horror-based, looking at something like Doom versus Duke Nukem. In Doom, you know, the the Doom guy, he doesn't have much of a personality other than he's a gruff guy that wants to kill demons, but Duke Nukem is very vocal about who he is. Um, and I think that's kind to of... To his the, detriment. To his detriment. And I think that's kind of the, the issue here is that in the first game, Ethan is kind of more like a Doom guy. And then in the second game, he has this Duke Nukem personality where you're not playing the character. I mean, sorry, you're not playing it as yourself. You're playing it as Ethan, if that makes sense. And I just think this whole incorporation of the secret society and stuff like that, like it doesn't have to be that way. I understand that, you know, this is created in the early, not early, but mid 2000s. So you're always wanting to kind of push the envelope in terms of, you know, what's scary and what's catching and stuff like that. And you want to, you want a one up saw, you want a one up seven and all the different like um, plot twists and stuff like that. And, you know, gotcha moments. But I think both of these games, um, not to sidetrack too much, but I think both of these games um, reviewed pretty well. Um, most of them got, you know, sevens and a half, eight, some nine. So pretty, pretty overall well reviewed. And I know most of them um, are pretty well revered, you know, looking back. But I, you, you kind of have to wonder what would have happened if there was a Condemned 3, like what direction they would have gone with. Um, I, I just think with if they would have just kept the first game it, it, by itself, it might not have this sort of like muddied reputation that it kind of does. I don't know, Jeremy, I've been talking too much. I'll let you talk. No, I agree. I think the second game suffers from that sort of like catch 22 of like complication makes it deep i like kind of which what you get with like the movie inception where it's just like it just gets so turned around and wrapped up inside of itself everyone's like whoa man that's really that's really cool and deep it's like eh, no not really it's it's kind of bad at least in my opinion um just with like the cult and it running deep it's got like these sort of like conspiracy ties leaning into the illuminati like kind of thing where it's just like this huge under uh, undercover organization that's uh, that's running and i would be okay with that if the f- it didn't seem like it was something that they thought up in the last like five minutes of the first game where there's like 
oh, we could make a sequel out of this. Let's put some cult stuff in there just so it kind of makes a little bit more sense. Because the first act one and two of the first the first game is very like procedural police kind of um almost reminds me of uh what is the movie where harrison ford uh is running from the cops because of the one-armed man killed his wife um i didn't kill my wife i don't care i don't care um um fugitive yes it like it's very fugitive right like and then it so it just takes that basic story and then adds an element of mysterious crazy people and then it adds another element of a cult causing like it's just kind of like a hat on a hat on a hat on a hat on a hat instead a of hat just taking, a hat. instead of just taking this basic story and kind of adding a little bit of spice to it it's like it's like when you leave your pizza rolls in the oven too long because you think they're going to get a little crispy, like it's going to make it better, but it just ends up burning it and you ruin the whole, you ruin the entire bar mitzvah. I don't know. Exactly. I think you summed. <laughs> I think you summed up condemned to <laughs> ruin the entire bar mitzvah. Well, let, let's put it this way. So I, I don't necessarily think we need to talk about the characters. I know that's one of like the major things about this game. <laughs> My drinking demon ruined the entire bar mitzvah. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to episode five or six or whatever this is, ladies and gentlemen. Um, I don't know if we necessarily needed to kind of talk about the characters more in depth. I mean, Ethan is this SCU agent. You know, he's he's initially just prescribed as this, you know, detective sort of interviewing these cases. But turns out by the end of the second game, he's this prophesized remedy to um, the Oro cult that's destroying the world. Um, so it's just like... Isn't that a thing of the that that genre or that era too, where it was just like every main character is the chosen one? Right? You've got like I'm trying to think of Matrix and a bunch of other things like that, where it's like everything's this prophetic hero. Oh yeah, I don't know the Matrix, Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings. Don't need to go on. Yeah, I, the, exactly. That's kind of what I was getting at. So what you're saying? Taking some of the cliches of the time. So what you're saying is that Ethan from Condemned is the Harry Potter of fictional Brooklyn? Yeah. Yeah. Um, we usually talk about world building, too. Um, and this game, these games, they kind of just take place in a fictionalized New York City is what I'm guessing. Metro uh, City. Yeah, Metro City. It's just like it's every dark and gritty fake. Half Brook- or half New York, half Chicago, half yeah. L.A.? Yeah, it just takes all of the gritty negative elements of every major city and just kind of compiles it. Like, the environments aren't really, like, the catch-all for this. You know, this isn't like Sonic the Hedgehog, another Sega game where, you know, environments are everything. This is really a really plot-focused, action-focused, and horror-focused game. Yeah, and the whole city is kind of run down if you... I'm not sure how much of, like, the gameplay you watched, but I kind of replayed through it a little bit uh, quickly. And just, like... You're in, like, the central library, and even that's a pile of crap. You know, just everything is run down. So just some really creative, like, design ideas to just make this whole city bad. It almost makes me wonder what's worth saving in it. That's a good point. I mean, it it, it reminded me a lot of, like, the Max Payne games. Oh, my Um, God. Yeah, maybe we'll do those games at a certain point. I love the third one. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And I, I... I haven't thought about Max Payne in years. 
and I don't know if those actually take place in New York City or if it's an alternate city. I'd have to look. But it, it kind of feels like that. It's just like the, just gritty, rundown, grim, gray. It's like you know, everything sucks. Everything sucks, which it kind of does. But um, that's what podcasts are for, right? So, and you know, I think with this, the environments aren't really super um, notable necessarily. It just kind of follows the gamut of every mid 2000s game having a gritty version of new york chicago la rolled into one it was the and, new metal age no man this every, is like wasn't it i don't know i guess this is like kind of getting on the edge of of new metal i mean yeah like it's just everything was edgy in 2005 yeah i mean and like like we said i mean it, it follows a lot of the tropes of mid 2000s gaming like especially the second one doing qte things and like combo systems for fighting it just doesn't fit i think the first one if it would have stayed as it was with this sort of nameless protagonist not becoming the harry potter of brooklyn um it just would have been a lot more compelling and um probably had a lot more go ahead i think if they like re-updated the graphics and re-released it it like it was a little rough to replay because everything's like doesn't respond well um you know it's a little janky because it's just an old game but i think if they've like re-released it like i it would be a really good game yeah no i mean don't get me wrong it, it kind of sounds like act three so yeah, i mean no it kind of sounds like we're trashing on these games but we're really not i mean obviously we think the first game is a lot stronger than the second one i mean i was even in 2021 here um you know going through the first game again and i'm like dang you know i have the lights off and i'm like this is pretty scary but then i'm watching the second one, i'm like come on you know, it's just, I, I think it takes away. We're um, critical because we love it. Yeah. I mean, we're critical because we love gaming and this is spooky month. So we're focusing on spooky stuff. And I think what's so compelling about the initial couple missions of the first game is just that you are this nameless, hapless person. You don't have, you're not the chosen one yet. You're not the chosen one. You're just a guy that's investigating a scene and you have to defend yourself against these crazed you know, maniacs that are running around through these decrepit apartments. But then as the second game goes on, you have the voice and you have, you know, all these psionic abilities. It's like, what is going on? It, it just takes, it, the more overpowered you are, I think, in horror games, the more, you know, it takes away from that fear factor, I think, in a sense, thanks to Rogan. <laughs> Never. <laughs> Thank you, Joe Rogan. Uh, yeah, like, I think just kind of building off what you're saying, I think what makes horror scary is the fact that you can kind of put yourself into that situation so if your character is the chosen one it's harder for someone to empathize with that or kind of put themselves in there when you look at uh the first game though like you said he's just kind of a random nobody and so when you when you lose your gun and you're running around like pulling pipes off of walls and the bad guys are hitting you with pipes and like it the blocking is kind of hard because you have to time it right. And if you're playing on the, some of the harder difficulties, like they can two shot you, which is pretty scary if you think about it. Cause I don't know how many times you probably hit me two or three times with a pipe before I get knocked out. But, um, I'm definitely not going to shout someone's head off. So it just seems like the first game, it's more of an even playing field. Yes, exactly. And I think that's what makes it scary. Just the fact that like you're weaker than the people you're fighting in a lot of ways. Right. And yeah, I, again, I, I don't think it's necessary to kind of jump more into the characters or the, you know, environments. It's just really a, a very solid, I think we can both agree that's a very solid series. 
Um, it would be interesting to see them kind of come back to this series, but as far as I know, I think it's been shelved for a long time. So that's really the thing with a lot of these IPs that came out in the late 2000s is they gave it a shot and it worked out decently well, but they always wanted to kind of be innovative and try new things. And it just, I don't know, it's just one of those series that I think the people that love it, love it. And the people that hopefully are listening have had some experience with it. And if you haven't had experience with it, I do definitely recommend it just to kind of try out, especially in, in spooky month. Um, but it's like five bucks on steam. Yeah. It's, 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 it, these are good games overall. Overall, they're very solid games. If you like stuff like, I don't know, evil within, if you like the saw movies, if you like any of the sort of like thriller horror stuff that is kind of pretty prevalent around the time it's definitely worth checking out yeah i would say it's uh that's actually evil within with like la noir is like where where this game sits yeah that's a that's a pretty good uh that's a pretty good description of it um i just think what kind of happened after these games came out is that it went more of the direction of the jump scare five nights at freddy's slender man stuff and you know that has its own merits don't get me wrong um i think horror is always going to be one of those um genres and gaming that are always going to kind of push the envelope um whether that's jumping into the realm of vr but i think for me personally i think what is most terrifying is like psychological elements of horror more so than jump scares because like you said jump scares are pretty predictable and they're pretty there's not a lot to them it doesn't make you think more about the experience it just is what it is and i think what's cool about games like condemned and the like is that it does make you think and it does make you a little bit more involved as long as it has a good story. I mean, there's some really good examples of modern horror games, stuff like Until Dawn, um, which I've played a little bit of, which is really good. Um, you know, obviously Alien Isolation, I know a lot of people are really hot on that game. So it's really going to be interesting to see how the horror games are going to be moving forward as we jump into the next generation of, of gaming. But uh, I guess that remains to be seen. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that wraps up Condemned, Criminal Origins, and Bloodshot. Again, both very solid games um, that came out 15 years ago or so. Check them out if you have the opportunity to do so. Um, we usually kind of jump into the inspiration and themes like that, but looking at themes and stuff, I don't really see any overlying themes here. It's it, With the second one, it's like the, the thing that jumps out to me is like, don't trust anybody. But <laughs> That's a good theme. I mean... When, I, I watch a lot of true crime, and if there's one thing I know is it's you shouldn't trust anybody. But, you know, it doesn't have, like, the cool, cutesy ways of interjecting environmentalism to, you know, Sonic the Hedgehog or something like that. Um, or even, like, how to overcome the second world like Shaq Fu. But, um, you can solve all of your problems by yelling. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's not... A, that's a theme. That is a theme. You can You can yell and become the chosen one, just like every other mid-2000s character just be the chosen one be the chosen it's way, one it's way easy and that being said ladies and gentlemen we appreciate you guys coming on checking us out again remember to share this with your friends anybody that's interested in this sort of stuff you can find us on podbean you can find us on twitter you can find us on spotify apple all the good podcasting place at page to pixel jeremy why don't you send us out with a little bit of just great positivity and nuance Check your candy for razor blades and syringes this Halloween.
Ooh. No, it is Dickinson. I thought Bruce Dickinson. <laughs> Do you know what defenestrating means, Reed? Is that a common word? Uh, throwing someone through a window. Correct. Proud of you. The search takes him to a farmhouse on an apple orchard. Or <laughs> orchard. Okay. <sighs> Eins, zwei, drei, vier. Ethan to get head from a serial killer. Nice. <laughs>